This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week our attention returns to Cuba. We'll discuss ideas for new diplomatic initiatives and a new documentary that reveals the experiences of young Americans on the island. But first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. A train crash in Argentina left at least three people dead and 315 injured. The destruction occurred when a two-level commuter train smashed into the back of another train stopped between stations in a suburb of Buenos Aires. Argentina's interior minister, Florencio Randazzo, spoke about the crash. We want to determine if this was an accident or an attack. If this could have been avoided, then it was not an accident, and there are one or more people responsible. Last year, Argentina's president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, promised to improve train safety after a train crash killed 51 people and injured 700 on the same rail line. An Argentine court sentenced the country's former president, Carlos Menem, to seven years in prison for weapons smuggling. The court also banned 82-year-old Menem from holding an elected office for 14 years. Menem's current position as a senator makes him immune to the jail sentence, but the presiding judge called the Senate to vote to remove that immunity. The court concluded that Menem directed illegal smuggling operations that sent weapons to Ecuador and Croatia in the 1990s in violation of international embargoes. Peru's president, Yolanta Humala, visited Washington, D.C. to meet with President Barack Obama this week. As Peru's capital, Lima, began construction of its subway this month, Humala said building infrastructure in his country will greatly reduce inequality. Our reporter, Zach Cohen, has more. Peruvian President Ohanta Humala decried the inequality in his country this week when he spoke at the Center for America Progress in Washington. He said building public transportation would do wonders to reduce poverty and increase the country's exports. The more time we give to citizens so they can use it effectively, then Peru will become more competitive. Humala said infrastructure, like the new metro system in Lima, will help rural populations find work without moving into an already crowded capital. And that might cause the capital to collapse as it wasn't designed to host so many inhabitants. Umala said as his country becomes economically tied to others, it will take on other international responsibilities, such as dedication to human rights and environmental protection. For Latin Pulse, I'm Zach Cohen. U.S. immigration reform cleared its first major hurdle in the Senate this week. Senators voted 82 to 15 to push the reform bill forward to the next round of debate, but it will have to survive additional amendments and a final vote before moving to the House of Representatives. President Obama rejoined the debate this week, advocating for the bill's proposals. The system's still broken. And to truly deal with this issue, Congress needs to act. And that moment is now. If passed, The bill would provide a pathway to citizenship for more than 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. Venezuela's Electoral Commission confirmed that President Nicolas Maduro won the majority of votes in April's presidential election. The commission found no fraud or discrepancy after auditing millions of national votes. 
Opposition candidate Enrique Capriles denounces the audit as fake and continues to argue the election was rigged. The commission says Maduro won the presidency by less than 1.5 percentage points. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. A group of former diplomats and academics are attempting to break the diplomatic logjam that has built up in relations between the U.S. and Cuba during the past 50 years. Their efforts come just weeks after the U.S. State Department again listed Cuba among countries that sponsor terrorism. The group proposing diplomatic change has put together a detailed five-point plan. Their efforts were coordinated by the Argentine think tank called the Regional Coordinator for Economic and Social Research, which goes by the Spanish acronym CRIES, or La Coordinadora Regional de Investigaciones Económicas y Sociales. We spoke to Andres Serbin, the president of CRIES, at the recent Congress of the Latin American Studies Association, LASA, in Washington, D.C. This is the result of a long process, a four-year process, of a dialogue between U.S. and Cuba academics and former diplomats uh, through a series of workshops that we organized all over Latin America, all over the hemisphere as such. As such, the recommendations are focused in five areas uh, with very specific proposals. One is in the area of academic, scientific and cultural engagement to improve this uh, specific area. The second one is focused on freedom to travel. The third one is on international commerce and development. The fourth one is particularly sensitive and is focused on terrorism and security issues. And in this uh, area, we recommend that Cuba should be uh, withdrawn from the list of uh, terrorist states as such. And finally, there is an area of recommendations in uh, environmental measures between both countries. You've already pinpointed the, the area that, that is the most controversial, but certainly if, if any of these proposals were, were agreed to, it would be a, a big step in changing the U.S.-Cuban relationship. What is the real possibility of getting the United States to agree to take Cuba off of the state-sponsored terrorism list? Well, of course, this is a political decision by the United States. Uh, probably that should be negotiated uh, between the executive branch and the congressional and the Congress as such. But uh, I'm not excluding that this could happen even before the end of the year. That depends on how uh, the conversations within the United States... Before the end of 2013, you think it's a possibility? I won't exclude that as a possibility because that doesn't make any sense. And uh, additionally to that, there are some conversations going on between the two governments. This is just an exercise uh, developable uh, between two groups of academics and former diplomats. But I understand that there are official conversations that are very well advanced in terms of cooperation. And we should see what is going to happen in the next uh, months regarding those issues. I know you're aware that when it comes to Cuban diplomacy, we're really also talking about internal politics and domestic politics in yeah. the United States. Yeah. And, yes. and, and certainly um, 
um, someone who is being named as a potential presidential candidate in Florida, Marco Rubio, the senator there, will certainly have something to say about this. I, I can't imagine that he would let something like this go, uh, along with many of the other folks who have Cuban roots in, in the Congress. Well, it's very difficult for me as a foreigner to assess exactly what is going to be, what are going to be the dynamics of the process and of the negotiation. Of course, there are sectors with created vested interests in uh, keeping the situation as it uh, was for the last, uh, I would say, for the last 50 years. But uh, eventually, I also think that uh, from a Latin American perspective, uh, I, I represent an organization which is a Latin American organization, a Latin American network. From us, for us, uh, this is mostly a sort of a dinosaur which is surviving in the middle of the hemisphere. So, from our point of view, this is not only a bilateral problem, but it's mostly a hemispheric problem and should be dealt also as a hemispheric problem. So, we think that most of the countries of the hemisphere and eventually of the international community should contribute to solving this problem as soon as possible because this is really out of history. We have talked several times on this program about this very point, about how Cuba has changed how the U.S. is perceived in the rest of Latin America. But let's get more specific into this particular area beyond the state-sponsored terrorism list. One of the recommendations talks about, in its own oblique way, political prisoners, which would mean returning the Cuban Five to Cuba, which would mean Alan Gross coming back to the United States, which that's inherent in, in your proposal too, is it not? Well, in fact, uh, what is important of this document is, and that was pointed out at the presentation here in Lhasa, is that we are not making recommendations for one of the governments. We are making recommendations for both governments to change their relationship. So, if we take this into account, they should take the steps, the, step, the steps in the direction of changing this relationship and they should assess what are exactly the steps in this direction. So I wouldn't say they should do that or this, but obviously one of the issues that are at stake are the issue of the political prisoners and the, of Alan Gross on the other side. So both governments should discuss this and find a solution to this situation. Obviously the United States sees Alan Gross as a political prisoner and the Cuban government sees the Cuban Five not as spies but as political prisoners in the United States. And, and yes, your recommendation says all political prisoners need to be released and returned. Um, my a, recommendation... That, that, is, that, that itself is huge headline news. Well, my recommendation, uh, as a chair of a group that is working on dialogue and mediation in other countries and in other regions, is that both parties should sit and discuss this and find the, bet, the better way of solving the situation. Let me move to some other areas because I don't want this one sole area because there are four other areas in your recommendation, one being commerce. 
and you talk about improvement of commerce between the two countries. Am I reading this correct that you don't address the embargo? You haven't touched the, the idea of the U.S. embargo against Cuba, economic embargo. That's not dealt with in your recommendations. Well, uh, there is a mention uh, in general terms during the discussions of, of, of the embargo as such, but my impression, and this is not related to the recommendations as such, and this is my own perception, is that there is a lot of changes in the economic relations between Cuba and the United States in the latest uh, period, I would say probably in, the, in a year and a half in terms of uh, the access and the selling of uh, food, of medication, uh, of the sending of the remittances, uh, of some small investments that are developing uh, from the United States to Cuba. So there is a significant change which uh, it's uh, not so visible but it's occurring at this time. So, I don't know if, uh, sometimes people need to talk about big changes, but uh, don't care to see what is happening in terms of small changes. And uh, it's very interesting to see that at the same time that those small changes are happening in the economic area, and eventually also in the political area, we are caring about some very less relevant situations that are not really affecting this, the process of real change of the relationship between Cuba and the United States that is happening now. One of the areas of suggestions that you have is for both countries to work on the environment and environmental concerns together and inside of that recommendation there is the concept of technology exchange which I would also think would be very controversial in Miami and here in Washington DC. Can you address that at all? I don't know if this is going to generate some kind of reactions from some sectors. Eventually it would happen. But there is the need to deepen this process of those initiatives that started with a very specific collaboration to develop them to something larger that could, could help to develop those relations that we're trying to improve. You're optimistic that something's going to happen with at least one section of your proposals? I'm optimistic with most of the sections of our proposals. And I'm optimistic because it's not a question of a bunch of academics and uh, former diplomats saying, saying a lot of things about what should happen or what we would like to happen. I'm optimistic because I see some movements from both governments in terms of generating some kind of change in the relationship. Andre Serbin of CRIES, the Argentine think tank, thank you so much for Thank you, Rick, for inviting this. me and thank you for letting me express my points of view about this process. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania 
and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces, we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. UNGift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, we feature another visit from documentary maker Bill Gentile. Gentile teaches at American University, and he's been covering Latin America for a good part of the past four decades. During this conversation, Gentile discusses his new project called Through Their Eyes, a documentary that follows American college students as they explore Cuba. It was the first time in, in all of their lives that the, the students had been to the island. So everybody went there with preconceived notions. I myself have been going to Cuba since 1981, so I knew you know, enough about uh, the island. It, my wife, uh, of course, is, is Cuban-born as well. Uh, and I've been there a number of times on, on professional visits as a journalist and personal visits to see uh, her family, to visit her family. So we knew something of the island before, before we, we uh, embarked upon the journey. The students, however, had never been there. So everything for them was a surprise. And you can imagine they went there with these extreme versions um, on both ends of the political and cultural spectrum, uh, some expecting one thing, some expecting another. But I think everybody was really surprised by what they saw and what they experienced. Now, without giving away too much of the plot and too many of the surprises within the documentary, what was the main surprise that, that we can walk away with from your film and, and from the protagonists in your film? The students went there almost invariably to discover one or more of the following. Revolution, race, and religion. And each one of them came away with a startlingly different view of what they found there. So what they had expected to find, they did not find at all. Every one of them grew in, 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 in some very important way. They, they went there to, 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 the, to explore revolution, race, and religion, and they came back knowing more not only about those three issues, but more importantly, about themselves. And, and this is, I think, one of the, one of the most important um, uh, benefits of, of foreign travel and foreign study, going to a foreign place and seeing your country, your people, your politics from other people's perspective. You can't get that being in your own country. You have to leave the country to see that. And, and, and these students really, um, I think, um, were profoundly changed um, once they had done that, especially to a place like Cuba, which is you know, surrounded by, by myth and mystique and, and uh, falsehoods and, and from both sides, um, uh, they came back really enlightened about, about the place and about them as people. I hope we have time to explore adequately the three R's of your film that you just laid out here. Um, but let's start with the more obvious one, revolution. And as someone who's been accused of being um, um, too idealistic in my views of the Cuban revolution in the past, especially the first time that I went to the island. I'm, I wonder if that is also the take that you see in your film, is, is more of a, a naivete about how the revolution really worked. You, you know, I, I, I'm one of these people who, depending on whom I'm speaking with, um, I'll take one or the other position on Cuba. Um, and I often find myself criticizing Cuba and, and its revolution, and I think uh, um, some of that criticism is, is justified. However, 
uh, having lived in, in Latin America and in the Caribbean myself and having worked there since 1977, a long time, I often find myself defending the revolution as well because, for example, if you go to just about any other capital in Latin America or the Caribbean, aside from Havana, you'll find these rings Anillos de miseria, or rings of misery around the capital. You'll find these very poor, dangerous, alienated, slum neighborhoods where the level of poverty and desperation is just ferocious. You don't find that in, in Cuba. You find want in Cuba. You find need in Cuba. You don't find misery in Cuba. You know, I ask people, where do you want to be? Do you want to, if, you have, if you're married and have a four-year-old son and your son gets sick, where do you want to live if you, you have limited economic means? you want to live in Managua, where you have a so-called free press and free elections? you want to live in El Salvador, where you have a free press and free elections? If you're poor, that means you probably won't be able to get your four-year-old son medicine to heal himself. That, you know, in, if you're in Havana, you may not have what we, what we perceive to be a free press and, and freedom of movement and so forth. But you know what? Your son is not going to die from gastrointestinitis like he might otherwise do in Managua, in San Salvador, in Tegucigalpa, and just about any other place in Latin America and the Caribbean. And we know from the statistics that, that the, the Cuban economy, despite the embargo, um, provides a, a better standard of living than El Salvador or Nicaragua, the two countries that you mentioned. The Cubans do the best that they can, I think, uh, uh, and they're pretty good about, about spreading the, the, um, the, the need or the want across the society. Uh, you don't have the extremes of, of wealth and poverty that you see in just about every other country in Latin America and the Caribbean. It, that, that, that doesn't happen. Is there, is there inequality in Cuba? Of course there is. And, you know, we can talk about that when we talk about race. But, you know, it's, it's, actually this is a pretty good segue. Well, let's make that transition. What, what did you think that your students saw in this film about race that was surprising to them? You know, one of the pillars of the Cuban Revolution is uh, the whole contention that they live in kind of a post-racial society. Um, and, and after having gone there, um, I think the students came away with the realization that, you know what, um, that's not quite true because there is a, is it, there's a, there's a fairly significant disparity of, of living conditions between a vast Afro-Cuban population and the, the Caucasian Cuban population. Um, um, there, is, there is racism there. It's undeniable. Um, it's, not, it's not institutionalized like the kind of racism that we used to have here. Cuba never had this whole idea of, you know, uh, white-only fountains and black-only fountains or white-only hotels, black-only hotels or white-only restaurants and black-only restaurants. That never existed in Cuba. Um, but there is still racism, not in the, the official laws of the Cuban government, not in the Constitution, but sadly in the hearts and the minds of many Cubans. I think the government understands this. It recognizes it. You know, from Fidel on down, the government has tried to counter this in, 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 innate racism in Cuba. Um, it hasn't been completely successful. And I think our students who went there with this idealistic notion that Cuba was a post-racial society came away understanding that it's not. And now here's a short excerpt from Bill Gentile's film, Through Their Eyes. I've been treated a little differently since I've been here. Like, coming in and out of the hotel, I've been stopped a couple times, um, and they've asked me where I was going, whereas, you know, some of the other guys, they can just, like, come straight through and nobody asks them anything. I was a little annoyed the first couple times it happened, and I was like, you know, came all the way here, 
expecting, you know, them to be all progressive and stuff on at least the issue of race. We want to use the, the film, I want to use the film, and my wife want to, wants to use the film as something that will reinitiate a discussion, an awareness, a consciousness about Cuban-American relations. You know, this, this, this whole dynamic between our two countries, if you study the history between the two countries, it's extraordinary how, how, how you know, both of these countries develop, how their cultural um, identity um, has developed in conjunction with each other. That, that, that link, that connection has been broken by, you know, uh, this blockade that our country holds against, against Cuba. But there's, there's an extraordinary island out there. It's full of wonderful, vibrant people, culture, music, uh, uh, you know, uh, that just begs to connect back, reconnect with America and with Americans. And we're not talking about that now. We're talking about the Middle East, and I understand that. We're talking about North Korea, I understand that. We're talking about Venezuela, perhaps. Okay, I understand that. But at some point, you know, we've got to re reinitiate this conversation about Cuba and, and what, you know, we both have to offer each other. Documentary maker Bill Gentile of American University, thank you for joining us again on Latin Pulse today. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Gentile's Through Their Eyes documentary should be available on public broadcasting television stations in the U.S. sometime this summer or fall. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. During his recent visit to Latin America, Chinese President Xi Jinping said, the more Latin America develops, the better it is for China. President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden, also recent travelers to Latin America, conveyed essentially the same message, that the U.S. benefits from a prosperous Latin America. That message explains why both the United States and China welcome each other's commercial engagement with Latin America. There is no doubt in Washington or in the region that China's trade and investment has been key to Latin America's vibrant growth over the past decade. China, according to virtually every analyst, has been a critical tailwind propelling that growth. Mexico and a few other countries have seen China take over some of their markets in the U.S., but that is a result of China's overall industrial expansion, not its involvement in Latin America. And Mexico is regaining sales as Chinese wages rise and Mexico becomes more competitive. Similarly, China is well aware of how much Latin America's prosperity depends on the region's access to U.S. markets, investment capital, technology, and remittances. The Beijing government knows that any slackening of the U.S. economic role in Latin America would shrink China's exports to the region and reduce the attractiveness of its own investments there. To be sure, the U.S. and China are also competitors in Latin America. U.S. economic preeminence in the region has waned, as China's presence has increased many times over. But even as the U.S. share of Latin America's imports have diminished by some 40% in the past decade, the absolute value of U.S. exports to the region has doubled and investments have surged. 
China's enormous commodity purchases from Latin America are making the region a bigger and better customer for U.S. goods. In short, Washington has no good reason to be worried about China's active and expanding presence in Latin America or fear that the U.S. will be sidelined. China has been content to focus mainly on economic goals and has avoided political entanglements. For its part, the U.S. has not sought to limit China's activity in the region. So far, it has been a win-win situation for both countries and for Latin America particularly, and it should remain that way for some time. That probably explains why Latin America didn't get much attention at the Obama-Xi encounter in California. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and are not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to his Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, writer Zach Cohen, and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>